Well, I probably mentioned about a hundred times that from 98 to 2001, Corey and I were living in the Bay Area of California. I was on this Coast Guard unit called the Strike Team, and we would respond to oil and chemical spills. And one particular job, a friend of mine was on a on a on a job in a, one of the Pacific Islands, <clears throat> and he scratched his ankle on a piece of coral. He didn't think much of it. It was uh, just a little red, just a little swollen, small little scratch. Uh, but he didn't know until after he got on the airplane that the particular bacteria that was in his ankle was anaerobic and it would thrive in a low-pressure, lower-oxygen environment like the cabin of an airplane. By the time he got back to San Francisco, his his whole bottom of his leg was swollen up. He had to go right to the hospital, couldn't put any weight on it. And the doctors kept throwing the latest and greatest antibacterial uh, uh, treatments on it, and none of it was working. And this guy was healthy. We would play soccer together, um, very active, young guy. And they're already talking about taking his leg off just three days later. Then he got a second opinion. A doctor came in and said, have you tried good old penicillin. You know the old school stuff you used to grow in a petri dish when you're in biology class. There's not much of it left in hospitals, but there is a particular lab in Southern California where they could get it. It was already made up and they flew it the same day up to the hospital in San Francisco. And it worked. It worked. None of the fancy newer variations worked, but the good old-fashioned penicillin worked. The reason was over the years, the bacteria had built up resistances to these newer strains of antibiotics. But it was no match for the old school stuff. There was a time when, good or bad, Western Europe and the United States were thought of as quote-unquote Christian. Now, I would, I would argue that there's no one generation or nation that has ever got Christianity all right. There's no one that's ever lived above reproach. But... Times have definitely changed from where they were 100 or 200 years ago. In fact, the U.S. used to be known as sending out missionaries, and now it's not uncommon to meet missionaries who are coming here to evangelize us. In fact, at Regent College in 2005, I took a class called Re-Evangelization of the First World, where we were taught how to re-communicate the good news of Christ to Canada and the United States and Western Europe. Why? Because we, as a culture, have been inoculated to the gospel. We've built up a resistance to the original message, and so the church has kind of morphed the message over the years to appeal to people. So we'll talk about heaven all the time, but never talk about hell. Or there's churches that talk about hell all the time, but they never talk about anything good. Uh, we emphasize prosperity, but give no real voice to the fact that God is with us in suffering as well. We call people to pray a prayer of forgiveness, but we don't teach about the need to repent and to live a new life. We get people following religious rules and behaviors, but leave the heart untouched. Now, this is not just a problem in the United States or a problem of our generation. This is a human problem. Every generation has gone through some cycle like this. And 2,000 years ago, the Israelites were experiencing a similar dilemma. God had given them this amazing vision and calling to be a light to the world, to be blessed in order to be a blessing, that God would be glorified. He gave them the law and the prophets, ethics and stories and revelation to guide them in how to live. But, just like us, they failed to obey. Which brings us to the text that we're going to look at this evening. 
Jesus came on the scene proclaiming the gospel or good news of God, saying, the kingdom of heaven has come near, breaking into our world. And he was inviting people to become citizens of this new kingdom. Dallas Willard translates it like this, repent for life in the kingdom of the heavens is now one of your options. Repent. For life in the kingdom of the heavens is now one of your options. You can choose to live a different kind of life than you were before. And one of the first major teachings about what life in this new kingdom looks like for those who trust Jesus is known as the Sermon on the Mount, which you've heard me say over and over again because we've been living in the Sermon on the Mount for the last few months. Up until this point... Jesus has been telling us about who's blessed in the kingdom of heaven and who who it is that can become his followers. He really hasn't told us to do anything yet. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the humble, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He's declared that if you follow him, you are salt and light to the world. And in just a few verses from this evening, we're going to see a transition from Jesus telling us who is in the kingdom to what life looks like in the kingdom. He's going to transition from an invitation to follow to instructions on how to live in this new kingdom. But before we get to Jesus' commands, he gives us four verses that act as kind of a hinge between the Beatitudes and the meat or the commands of the Sermon on the Mount. It's these hinge verses that we're going to focus on tonight. And they go like this. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all has been accomplished. Whoever then annuls the least one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But the person who keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, help us. This is a difficult thing to understand. But we know that uh, we don't call it gospel for nothing. We know that there's good news here, Lord. And we pray that you would help it to come out and that you would change our lives, not just our minds. Amen. Well, these four verses comprise one of the notoriously most difficult sections in the New Testament. There's a few others, but this one is is a real doozy. In fact, that's why I'm going on vacation tomorrow, because I'm so burnt out from trying to wrap my head around it all week. Small libraries have been written just on these four verses. On the one hand, you have Jesus talking about fulfilling the law and the prophets. On the other, you have him defending uh, obedience to every iota of the text. So which is it? Is it all fulfilled? Are we supposed to follow every letter and scratch of the law? We'll try and make some sense of this, but before we enter that fray, let's take a step back and ask, why has Jesus written this at all? Or why has he said it at all? 
what was it um, that would make people think that Jesus was abolishing the law or the prophets? And what we find, I think, is revealing. First of all, Jesus' message in the Beatitudes was foreign to the popular religion of the day. I emphasize popular religion of the day. I emphasize that because, as I've been saying from the beginning of this series, Jesus' Beatitudes are not original. At least their thought is not original. They're not brand new. They are a fulfillment of some very old prophecies. Now, the world was broken, and the religious leaders were trying to fix it with the latest and greatest forms of antibiotics, if you will. But they were applying religious behavior and rule-following, but what the world needed was the original thing. And I realize that this analogy breaks down where uh, I start comparing Jesus to penicillin, but you'll forgive me, I hope. Um, Jesus comes in declaring that the poor in spirit and the mourners and the humble were all included in God's kingdom, just like Isaiah 61 talks about. The problem was that people were so far removed from God's intended life for them that they mistook Jesus' words as actually being something new or something against the law. So that's one reason why he has to talk about this thing, abolishing law and prophets. The second reason I think Jesus mentions these four verses is because he's about uh, to prepare us for, he's, he's preparing us for what he's about to teach. When we dig into the Sermon on the Mount in a few weeks, we're going to see that Jesus is teaching as one having authority to challenge the common misperceptions of the law. Jesus is going to ruffle feathers in the religious community, but what he wants everyone to know is that he's not actually teaching anything new. He's not starting a new religion. He is fulfilling what the scriptures have been saying and pointing to all along. So, he starts off with what makes sense. I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill. Now, that's really interesting. If, if you have Jesus saying, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, you might expect him to say something like, I did not come to abolish, but to uphold. Or I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I came to enforce them. But Jesus doesn't go there. He says, I, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And I want you, you know, if you've got your Bible and you're a note taker, circle that word fulfill. I think that that is the key to understanding these four verses and understanding Jesus, actually. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So I guess we better understand what is meant then by law and prophets, right? To put it simply, and this is a simplification, the law and the prophets was a way of saying the scriptures. So Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill the Hebrew scriptures. That's what we call the Old Testament. I came to fulfill the scriptures. Now, where this can get confusing is in the next few lines, like, they will not pass away until heaven and earth do, and whoever annuls the least one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is a problem because if you're serious about following Jesus, there can be some confusion. Here Jesus is saying that he's fulfilling every little seraph on the letters of the law. 
He didn't come to abolish any of this stuff. But then you read stories later on where Jesus is seemingly breaking these laws left and right. He's working on the Sabbath, doing healings, and he and his buddies are, are gleaning wheat. He's doing weird things with the temple. Um, not, not really respecting the religious leaders of the day. He told Peter, it's not about what you eat. It's not about what you bring in to your body that makes you pure or impure, but about what comes out. Just very good news for those of us who like ribs and pork chops and bacon. Now, all this can seem a bit trivial, but it can pose some real difficulties. Jesus says to uphold every little jot, the smallest letter of the law. But why is it that we continue to say, uh, teach about tithing, but we don't talk about not wearing clothes with two types of material in them? Or why do we uphold biblical sexual ethics, but don't keep laws that would prohibit people from skin lesions from coming and worshiping together? If the law and the prophets means all of Hebrew scripture, then how is it that we're supposed to keep and teach the narrative portions of the Hebrew scripture? For example, what do we do with the story of Lot getting drunk and sleeping with his two daughters? Like, I, I hope I don't apply that one, right? Or should we be like Samson who kills like 3,000 people with the jawbone of a donkey? I mean, how do you keep and teach all of the Hebrew scriptures that poses a, a, a complex issue? It actually is better suited for maybe discussion uh, around a table, uh, probably with some wine, or, uh, or, or a classroom environment. But, but what, I, what I suggest is that you hang with me. We're just going to dig a little bit deeper, and I promise there'll be gospel payoff. So are you ready? Are we can hang with me? Okay, everyone, deep breath. Don't, don't fall asleep. <clears throat> this is important. There is a difference. There is a difference between ethics and law. Okay? There's a difference between ethics and laws. Think of ethics as a set of ideals. The way things ought to be. God has ethics. And despite what our opinions are about what good ethics and bad ethics are, if we believe that God is God, then His, his ethics are really all that matters. Okay? So we know from the scriptures that one of God's ethics would be to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That's a timeless thing. I don't think God's going to change that one. But here's the problem. Last I checked, we are sinful people. Okay, so we have this great big ethic of loving our neighbor as ourself, but because I'm a fallen person, I start to rationalize. Well, who's really my neighbor? Ah, what's love? What, what does love really mean? You know, so I start to, to kind of cheat on that, on that ethic. And here's another issue that I was wrestling with. I don't really think I love myself very well. I'm broken. And last I checked, you were broken too. You probably don't fully love yourself like the Father loves you. So if I don't love myself fully, if I don't know what that means, then I may damage you if I love you like I love me. Right? If we allow the ethic of love neighbor to remain up in the air and generalized, it doesn't really help us to move in the right direction because we start rationalizing our way out of it. Enter laws. Laws are given to help bring structure and form and concreteness to ethics. So in scripture, God gives this law about 
building a, a, a rail about the top of people's houses. They used to hang out on top of their houses. They didn't have volleyball like uh, you know some cool bars do. But, uh, but they just would hang out up there, and sometimes people would fall off and hurt themselves. So the law was to build a guardrail around it. That law is to support the ethic of love your neighbor as yourself. Or take the ethic of love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. God gave that ethical ideal, right? But who did he give it to originally? He gave it to a group of Hebrew people who were living in Egypt for over 400 years. Their father, Abram, was a pagan guy who God just revealed himself to. And so he started having kids and those kids turned into Israel. And now he's communicating, hey, I I want you to worship me. He's talking to a group who lived in Egypt for over 400 years, a polytheistic pagan nation, and all of a sudden they're supposed to understand how to worship this one God the way he wants them to. Right? So the ethic is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But people needed laws to figure out how do we do that. So he would give them laws like, you shall have no other gods but me. And you probably think that's a no-brainer, but to people who had lots of gods around them all the time, that, that was a needed law. Or he wanted those people to be different than their surrounding neighbors so that they could be a light to the nation. So he gave them these purity laws. And, you know, that's the whole thing about not wearing two types of clothes or uh, you know, weird things like that. Now, the great missionary, E. Stanley Jones, is helpful here. Jones talks about the law as an ark. Not like Noah's ark, but like a line, an ark. God meets us where we are. That's called accommodation. But his ethic is always, always timeless. It's always the same. So he starts with us at one place, but over time reveals more and more of himself and his character so that laws change as we get closer to the ethic. God's law points us toward the goal, and that goal is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. All right. So one simplistic way of looking at the scripture, the, the law and the prophets, if you will, is there's three things. Sacrificial law... Sacrificial law, so that would be like animal sacrifice, grain offerings, thanksgiving offerings that you would, you would bring to the altar. There's ceremonial law, which are things like dietary laws and ritual washing and relationships between men and women and what is clean and unclean. Where to worship. Remember in the beginning of Israel's history, they could build altars wherever they would go. You'd read about Jacob getting some player and he'd build an altar to the Lord. Or so-and-so would build an altar to the Lord and they'd do a sacrifice on it. Well, then you read Deuteronomy and all of a sudden you're not supposed to do that anymore. You're supposed to just worship God in the tabernacle and eventually just the temple. You're not supposed to build these other altars. So these laws kind of have changed over time to support the ethic. The sacrificial law, ceremonial law, and then there's ethical law, like the Ten Commandments. Or... Like if your bull gets out of control and keeps goring people, you're responsible for that. You've got to kill your bull and, and repay the people. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is one of those ethical laws. Now you get the payoff for kind of sticking with me a little bit. Here's the good news. And think about what E. Stanley Jones is talking about with this arc. Taking an ethic, a goal, and giving us laws to help meet that goal. Okay? 
First, the sacrificial law. The sacrificial law taught us that sin is so grave that it takes lifeblood in order to atone for those sins. The sacrificial system was in place to point people, think of the ark, to point people toward Jesus. But it was never completely satisfied. That is, until Jesus fulfilled it. The people of Jesus' day, familiar with the routine of animal sacrifice, quickly understood that Jesus dying as the Lamb of God was indeed God dying on our behalf to take away the sin of the world. Amen? So, He's fulfilling the law and the prophets. He's fulfilling the ark of Scripture in that sacrificial law. The last time I checked, we don't do animal sacrifices anymore. Why don't we do that anymore? Because Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial law. There's the ceremonial law. <clears throat> Once Jesus ascended and gave his followers the Holy Spirit, those people, we, are set apart in character and not merely externals. Jesus said, it's not what you put into your body that makes you impure, but what comes out of your heart. And Eric just read Jeremiah uh, where God promises to give people new hearts. See, and Jesus fulfills this. Every jot, every iota, every little seraph on, on the script. He gives us new hearts. And we're set apart by following Jesus, not by what we eat or by what we wear. Amen? That means bacon. And it also means cotton blends that are wrinkle-free, so I don't have to iron so much. It's awesome. Finally, we get to the laws that lead us toward God's ethic for life. And this is where the rubber meets the road in the Sermon on the Mount. And in following Jesus in general, Jesus is adamant that he's not giving us a new ethic. What Jesus is doing is recovering the original intent of the law. So take love of neighbor again. There's an ethic, a timeless ethic. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God gave a law that a law that supported the ethic of love your neighbor. The law was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that seems incredibly harsh in our culture, doesn't it? What you have to understand is during that time, before God gave that law, if you were to, uh, let's say you were drunk driving, we got in a car wreck, and it's your fault, and you, I had to amputate my arm, I would come after you and kill your family. And then your relatives would come and kill more of my family. And this is how it would go. Tribal warfare, revenge killings. And it would escalate and escalate and escalate. And then those families, with their resources would be depleted. And they would go to the little, little king of the next village and say, Hey, we'll be indentured servants to you if your army goes kick butt on that other village. And so it's this escalating violence. And so what God did was meet people where they were. Is that law the ideal for life? No. God's ideal ethic is love your neighbor as yourself. But you've got to start somewhere. And so in the escalating violence, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is actually a merciful law. It doesn't seem merciful at all to me though. The scribes and Pharisees tried hard to keep some of these laws but lost the ethic behind the law. Loving your neighbor 
does not include taking pleasure in revenge. So by the time the first century comes around, you get this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing, and the Pharisees think that they're really righteous because they obey that law. But I don't think God's intent, like, like there's stories where people actually take great pleasure in inflicting revenge pain to somebody else. Okay? So we're on the soccer pitch and somebody cleats my foot. That means eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I get to go stomp on their foot. They have to let me do it. And it would be like, I can't wait to, I'm going to get them really good. Or maybe a more uh, current event thing would be this whole Bin Laden deal. Actually rejoicing in the streets and making little uh, urinal mints with his face on it so you can pee on them. I think we should be very pleased that maybe personification of, of evil is gone. But I think it should be done in a more somber way. Should we really be rejoicing in anyone's death, especially a person that um, most people of faith would, would not consider a follower of Jesus, right? So we don't, we're not really certain on that person's eternity. I'm not sure that the, the massive celebrations um, of vindictiveness are in order. Uh, in our fallen world, that's probably what had to be done. There's a lot more thought to do about that. But I wonder how uh, Jesus looks at that as far as the rejoicing. And this is where it gets really sticky. How do we live this out? And if you just take a moment to think about how complex that issue is, it sends us back to square one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You guys, if we really think through these things and how difficult and complex they are, it either makes us really arrogant or it sends us back to square one of blessed are the poor in spirit, which is, I think, where Jesus wants us to be so that we're relying on him. Learning to do this together because this is really complex stuff. We'll get, we'll have a whole sermon on that um, loving enemies thing later on. Um, Jesus' ethic of loving neighbor as self is not fulfilled in eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That ethic, that arc, if you follow it out, I believe, is about forgiveness and loving enemies. So Jesus fulfills the ethical law by reminding us of God's ethic and by giving us the spirit so that we can actually begin to live this stuff out. And friends, that is, that is incredible news. That's gospel. Think about this. Sacrificial law, forgiveness. Ceremonial law, bacon. And the ethical law, a life worth living. That is, that is a complete gospel. The reality is, of course, that this is all very, very difficult to actually believe. And when I say believe, I don't just mean, oh, I got that in my head. I mean, it's very difficult to live it out. In fact, many of us, I think, are infected with a resistant strain of faith. A faith-resistant to God's grace on the one hand and resistant to his demands on our life for the other. We've heard Jesus' words now for 2,000 years but have become inoculated to their transforming power. We talk about his words 
but are resistant to actually do what he says. This resistant strain of faith usually plays out in two different ways. We either want to relax the law and live as though Jesus had no claim on our lives, on the one hand, or we become fundamentalists like the Pharisees on the other hand. We talk about God's grace out of the side of our mouth, but we live as though our salvation depended on our performance. And you know what? I'll just confess, I'm usually both of those things. On the things that I'm pretty good at, I think I'm, uh, you know, maybe on the pharisaical side. On the things that I really don't want to try on, I just relax that law. God's grace will cover me. In the 20th verse, Jesus says something that should rattle our cages a bit and make us think. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees focused on carrying out a specific spectrum of laws. They didn't focus on all of them. So surpassing the scribes and Pharisees is to pay attention to the whole arc of the law. Tithing and serving, yeah. But also caring for widows and orphans and living mercifully toward others. The scribes and Pharisees thought that they could be righteous before God through obedience to outward functions of the law. If they just looked good doing it, they were in. But Jesus says righteousness comes from within the heart. So what is it to keep and teach every letter or stroke from the law? In chapter 7, Jesus says, In everything, therefore, treat people in the way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. In everything, therefore, treat people the way you want them to treat you. This is the fulfilled ark of Scripture. This is the life Jesus came and died that you and I might have. Friends, if you find that your faith is resistant to the movement of grace Jesus is offering, allow this old but trusted medicine of the gospel to heal your wounds of striving after acceptance and performance. Receive forgiveness afresh. Freedom from sin and death and a life worth living. Let's pray.